Hello and welcome to a Lannan Centre podcast. I'm Aminata Fauna, Director of the Lannan Centre at Georgetown University. On this podcast, you can hear multi-award winning poets Kazim Ali and Fanny Howe in a joint reading in Georgetown University's Riggs Library. Introducing the poets are Lannan Fellows Sabrina Perez and Samuel Keho, respectively. In his poem, Hesperine for David Berger, the opening piece in his book of poetry, The Voice of Shayla Chandra, Kazim Ali writes, what if a painter left the canvas entirely and instead looked at the extant surfaces in the already man-made and man-frayed world? History then as fragile as stained glass and yet writing new narratives that shape every moment forward. This sentiment remained consistent throughout Ali's storytelling, a delicate care and respect for the science, myths, histories, theologies, people, places, and things that have shaped our world and have shaped Ali, always looking at the extant surfaces around him to inform his works. His books range multiple genres, including volumes of poetry, Inquisition, and Skyward, the winner of the Ohioana Book Award in Poetry, The Far Mosque, winner of Alice James Books New England and New York Award, the 40th Day, All One's Blue, the cross-genre text, Bright Felon and White Instrument, and his volume of three long poems entitled The Voice of Shayla Chandra. And what critics describe as a small ditty, easy to get lost in the sound, the cacophony, the lilt of the question, the repetition, and the nugget of casual speech lumped among the final three rhymes. To lose oneself in the sonic elements and reverberation is common here and throughout the collection. And what I see as an impressive blend between his interdisciplinary interests and poetic artistry. His novels include The Secret Room, A String Quartet, and the hybrid memoir Silver Road, Essays, Maps, and Calligraphies, and Fasting for Ramadan, Notes from a Spiritual Practice. A memoir of his Canadian childhood, Northern Light, presents questions of home, wounds, and the impact we have on one another and within our communities. Kazim Ali is also an accomplished translator and editor of several anthologies and books of criticism, a passion derived from his multilingual upbringing, and, as we learn today, a self-proclaimed outlaw and nomad. After a career in public policy and organizing, Ali taught at various colleges and universities, including Oberlin, Davidson, St. Mary's College of California, and Naropa University. He is currently a professor of literature at the University of California, San Diego, and is the founder of Nightboat Books, a nonprofit organization that seeks um, to develop audiences for writers whose work resists convention and transcends boundaries. Reading about Kazim's searching and questioning has motivated me to find space in my life to do the same. So please help me welcome Kazim Ali. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for that introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, I want to read to you, um, I want to go off the plan. <laughs> um, Fanny's going to read some poetry later, I think, but I wanted to switch over to a project that I'm working on now, which is um, a memoir in prose, specifically about the years that I spent in the Palestinian West Bank um, teaching yoga and training yoga teachers. Uh, like many things that happened in my life, this was not part of the plan. Um, I had gone actually to Palestine for the first time on a kind of, um, 
I don't know what to call it, a kind of a witness trip in a sense. It was run by an organization called Interfaith Peace Builders out of um, the Peace and Conflict Studies program at American University. You may know it. Um, the organization has now changed its name to Eyewitness Palestine. And that's really what you do in this program. We went, we met um, local people, activists on both sides of the various borders that run through that region um, of all faiths and backgrounds. And our aim was to learn about the conflict. Um, so that's why I was there. But um, I got tricked. I went to a yoga class and the yoga teacher at the end of the class. You know, in those days, one became a yoga teacher by just going to yoga a lot, and then a teacher would be like, hey, do you want to sub? And then suddenly you were teaching classes. It's a little, it's more regulated now, but, um, so that's how I became a yoga teacher. And, uh, and then I was invited back to train. Um, you know, I was teaching in English, and so the people who could come to my class were only people who could understand English. We wanted to train local people. There was a gender um, problem in that most of the yoga teachers were women and a lot of the students, it was complicated. Some of the students wanted to be in single gender environments. Some of the men only wanted to be in single gender environments. Some of the women only wanted to be in women only spaces. We just determined that we needed to train um, male yoga teachers. And so that became my job. The part of that I want to read to you is um, on my trip, I've just started to teach the yoga classes. What happened was they somehow convinced me to take over the entire schedule of the studio. So I was teaching everyone's classes, basically. And this is on, I taught the first couple of classes and they were only a few people. And this is probably the third or fourth day that I was teaching. I'm going to read the little portion to you. When I walk into Farasha Yoga next, I'm surprised. Apparently word has spread. The room is packed. No stranger to a full yoga room from my days practicing at the Jiva Mukti studio on Lafayette Street in Manhattan. I walk up and down the room, helping the students to place their mats in tight rows with only a little space in between them. It's okay. We'll do a side bend or two, but mostly we are going to stay, we are going to stay in the sagittal plane. I edge over to the counter where Mohammed and Maha are checking people in. What is going on? I asked Maha out of the side of my mouth. Everyone wants to take a class with the new teacher, she says. Apparently, he teaches a hard class. Do I teach a hard class? It's funny to me to think of yoga as hard or easy. I suppose I keep the classes vigorous and intense because I want the students to stay focused on the activity. I always provide modifications in both directions to make it easier for students who are less flexible and challenging for someone who's been practicing yoga for a long time. And I always break my classes down into a progression of parts. There are things about American yoga that I find hard for reasons that do not take one deeper into a yoga practice at all. For example, all the crunches, but also the extreme heat that many yoga classes are conducted in. If the point is to make you sweat out your water, I suppose that's okay. But if the point is to make you more flexible, I don't think it helps. The heat does the work, and it makes you more injury prone. Anyhow, I teach this class much as I've taught all the others, without much of a pause in between postures and giving clear verbal instructions, walking up and down the room in between the narrow spaces between the mats to observe as many students as I can while we go. It is strange and gratifying to feel like I have a purpose here. 
The day has become bearable. It was August. The day has become bearable. The temperature dropping significantly from yesterday's 100 degrees to a more bearable, especially in the hot winds that blow through Ramallah all day long, and a more bearable 80 degrees. Is this peacemaking too, I wonder, as I gently adjust the top arm of someone in triangle pose? I look around the room to see, oh, I'm sorry. Your chest is always open in a yoga pose, I say, always. And your shoulder blades are always either stable or moving together and down the spine. There is only one exception. Who knows it? I look around the room to see if there is any intrepid student who wishes to raise their hand. Actually, they all have raised hands, being still in the triangle pose I put them in. Teacher Qasim, says Muhammad, pronouncing my name in the Arabic style, as student, which is not Qasim, as students are rolling up their mats and gathering their things after the class is over. You never told us what the one pose is in yoga where your chest is not open and your shoulder blades are not together. Come on, Muhammad, I say lightly. Pay attention to your body during the next yoga class and you will figure this one out on your own. He concedes with a smile, but I'm not only joking. The original yogis developed the postures through experimenting with their own body by seeing how things felt. And in the end, yoga is a practice that is experiential, not theoretical or intellectual. Maybe that is what Patabi Joyce meant when he said, do your practice and all is coming. While it's true, Om Om Shri Satguru Bhagavan Ki Jai, we often say at the, cl- the close of a yoga class at the Jiva Mukti school. It means roughly translated, the only true teacher is the self. The self with a capital S, right? The big self. While it is true that the self meant here is that higher self, the one that we are all constituent parts of, it's the self, the lowercase self, that each of us as individual humans is working with, no matter what our spiritual beliefs or physical condition is. And not all selves are created equal in the world, after all. So how is a yoga teacher supposed to teach yoga to people who can never even walk through the door of a studio, who don't have money to afford the fees or who live under surveillance and military occupation, and for whom contemplative practice is an unimaginable luxury, as inaccessible as the sea, so very close, and yet behind military checkpoints, and what is essentially in practice an international border. How is one supposed to speak of an open heart in such a place. So I'm going to read uh, another portion of a vacation from the yoga class, the weekend when I wasn't teaching. Friday is Sunday in Palestine. And so Monday, uh, excuse me, Friday is Sunday in Palestine, and Saturday is the beginning of the work week. I walk down from my hotel past El Menara Square and into the old part of Ramallah to meet my friends Jan and Saeed. 
We are catching a cab into Jerusalem in order to meet up with two of Said's friends. And from there, we are taking a van out to the Sea of Galilee and then down to the place on the Jordan River where Jesus was said to have been baptized. And then on the road to Hebron in the south and ending our day in Jerusalem. We will be going on Palestinian roads, and so the distances, though the distances are small, about 120 miles end to end, it will take us all day and late into the night. We share the short bus with a group of Japanese tourists who speak animatedly to one another and to us, though in Japanese, all day long. The fact that none of us can understand Japanese does not seem to bother them, and sure enough, As the day progresses, we do actually manage to share our experiences with each other, even though different languages. The words are different, but the feelings are the same. Um, Let me skip. I want to take you to Hebron. How about it? Oh, no, actually, you know where I really want to take you is um, the Jordan, when we go to the Jordan River. Okay. It is a little less than 90 miles from Lake Tiberias to the site on the banks of the Jordan River where Jesus is said to have been baptized. Saeed's friend Nyla is complaining the whole way because when we were at the restaurant, all the men were staring at her. She's wearing a short wraparound skirt and a tank top with spaghetti straps. She is upset because she felt they were being lecherous and she doesn't understand that since it is so at odds with being religiously conservative. She had had to pull a shawl from her bag and cover herself with it. Devorah, the other woman with us, was more conservatively dressed in long-fitted trousers and a short-sleeved shirt and finally loses her patience with her friend and snaps, Nyla, they weren't looking at your body because they were being lechers. They were looking at your body because to them, you look like you're out in public in your underwear. And that, for the moment, settles the matter. The site of Jesus' baptism a few miles north of the Dead Sea was identified by various archaeological excavations and old manuscripts from Roman times and onwards describing various modifications that had been made, including specific types of earthworks and a set of marble steps leading down into the river. These last have been excavated exactly where the old manuscripts said they would be and preserved so pilgrims can approach the river at the precise spot where this event was said to have been taken place. There is naturally an entry experience, which includes a kiosk and a security gate with a counter for concessions and religious memorabilia. Unfortunately, when we arrive, the two Israeli soldiers say the area is closed and they flatly refuse to let us go, even go to the edge and look down. The Japanese pilgrims are distraught. Nyla and Devorah have stayed safely in the air-conditioned short bus, so they do not witness the fallout of their ill-timed lunch excursion. I should say, we were late because Nyla and Devorah decided to have lunch at a, a falafel stand at Lake Tiberias, so we were... Off, we're off schedule at this point. You have to let them go, plead Saeed. They've come all this way. The guards shake their head. Jan takes his turn. And then we play the oldest trick in the book. While Jan and Saeed get closer up in the guards' faces, pleading and cajoling, I gesture quickly to the littlest old lady in the Japanese group. I twitch my head towards the gate exaggeratedly. Her eyes narrow in a crafty expression. 
And then, with the cartoonishly exaggerating gestures, she minces on her tiptoes past the arguing guards, her forearms raised up, hands together, as if she is Sylvester the cat creeping by. I, re I realize that reference dates me. She disappears through the security gate and down the bank of the river. Later on the bus, after she has snuck back and Saeed and Jan leave off arguing with the guards, they couldn't have been fooled, could they have? She shares her pictures with the other pilgrims who all moan with delirious joy. It is late in the afternoon and several checkpoints later that we reach the troubled and divided city of Hebron, located south of Bethlehem. It is the only urban area in the West Bank which is split between Zone A, under civil and military control of the Palestinian Authority, and Zone C, fully under Israeli control, the majority of the land area of the West Bank, which includes all Israeli settlements and infrastructure. Of the 59 internal military checkpoints in the occupied West Bank, 18 of them are within the city of Hebron. The pilgrims are tired from our, our journey and decide to wander in the little marketplace and shop for souvenirs. But meanwhile, Saeed has arranged with a local activist named Isa Amro for a walking tour through the main areas of the downtown part of Hebron. As we walk, Isa points out the concrete barriers in the middle of the street. They're like those Jersey barriers, you know, with a thick green stripe of green paint marking the top of it. This indicates the different side of the city. We are in zone A, Hebron, but the other side of the barrier is the Israeli settlement uh, in zone C. So you can't walk on the other side of the street, Nyla asks. We can go, but we might be harassed or arrested, Isa says. As it happens, we are harassed anyhow. A 16 or 17-year-old kid with a submachine gun slung casually over his shoulder hops the barrier and starts following us, yelling at Isa in Hebrew. What is he saying, I ask? He's telling Isa he's going to get the cops, Saeed says. Isa is not allowed to be giving tours this close to the barricade. What do I care, Isa says. I grew up in this city. This was my city before Oslo, and it is my city after. They've punched me in the stomach. They broke my arm once. They've arrested me. They knocked me down. They kicked me. There's nothing left to do. Jan and I exchange a quick glance because we both know, and so does Isa, that there are a lot more things that they could do. In Palestine, we call this city Al-Khalil. It means beloved. It is an irony that this city is so afflicted. And what does Hebron mean, Devorah asks. Irony over irony, says Isa ruefully. It means friendship. We continue our walk, and eventually Isa does take us on the other side of the barrier into the part of the old city that is Zone C. We walk down an empty street. So he's showing us around a little bit in the Zone C and tells us some you know, different stories about what's happening. And then, of course, we get in trouble. Um, I feel uh, it's not a minute too soon. We're about to go back. It's not a minute too soon because the kid we saw earlier is back, and this time he's got two other soldiers with him. They're not much older than he is, but they're in uniform, and they have nightsticks and handcuffs on their belt, along with their machine guns and tactical backpacks. Yalla, says one, which I assume means the same thing in Hebrew as it does in Arabic, seizing Isa by the, other arm, by the upper arm. He's not going anywhere with you, I find myself saying, interposing my body between his and Isa, putting my hand on his arm. What the hell am I doing? 
This has always been my problem. I get into the middle of fights. I've always done it at parties, on streets, once at a wedding reception where a fight broke out, you have got to go to more Indian weddings, I vaulted over a table to get between two guests who had started brawling. It was my sister's wedding, actually. <laughs> Jan and Saeed are surprised, but are quick to back me up, and the three of us huddle our bodies against Isa. Then Nyla and Devora get into the action, wedging themselves between us, and they start batting the arms of the soldiers away. I know this could have gone south very easily, I, I need to tell you. You're going to have to take all of us, I say hotly, a local tour guide and five American teachers, I add, hoping he understands English. They hesitate too, perhaps loath to, put, loath to put their hands on Nyla's bare limbs. And then suddenly other people are there. What's happening over here, boys? An elderly woman with snow white hair wearing a purple t-shirt over a pinstripe collared shirt says, is everything here all right? Her shirt reads, Christian Peacekeeping Team. They literally patrol the streets of Hebron, breaking up fights, Saeed tells me later. Well, there's nothing better than a grandma to break up a street fight. <laughs> Dumb Americans, the kid says as he lets go of Issa's arm. Stay on your own side, the other soldier says, gesturing with the muzzle of his gun. Come on, says Issa, knowing when it's time to fold your hand. The second soldier snarls something at Issa in Hebrew as we leave, and his back stiffens. We return across the barrier to the other side and walk up the street toward the market in silence. What did he say, I ask Isa, but he does not respond. I drop back to where Saeed and Jan are walking. I turn to Saeed and ask, what did he say? Saeed's face is grave. He said that if Isa comes back, he's going to drag him into an alley and beat him and then rape him and then leave him there. What, hisses Devorah? It happens, Saeed says bleakly. It's a very effective threat because their victims would never tell anyone. Or they sodomize them with nightsticks in the jail. There have been reports, reported cases about this. The UN knows. There's actual sexual abuse, but other forms of torture too, like forced nudity. I can't believe it. But then again, remembering American abuses at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq I suppose I can believe it. All right, I'm gonna read one last small portion because this is the part of my life where I lived in DC. So then you'll hear a little bit about how I came to yoga. If it seems like being exposed some of, to some of the harshest manifestations of the occupation would make me feel powerless, it didn't. I had become politically active early I had attended public university and we'd had to become activists because each year we needed to follow the legislative process closely to see what the allocations were for us and how they affected our tuition. It was a constant year-round process and eventually I became involved with the student organizations that monitored and worked on these issues, including working for several years in Albany and then later coming to Washington DC to work for the United States Student Association. My move to Washington was not a happy one. It took me away from directly working in the field with local activists to a more national role. Uh, developing strategy, raising money, working with coalition partners, and less often than my legislative director would have liked, visiting Capitol Hill to lobby Congress people. For the record, Jim Jeffords and Olympia Snow, both Republicans, were my favorite, and yes, Newt Gingrich was as awful as people say. 
<laughs> Our hours were long and the work was stressful. Of course, when I was working on the state level, the stakes were high, but in DC, they seemed higher still, with Bill Clinton as president, not as friendly to higher education as one might wish, and a fully Republican Congress that had come into office campaigning on something they called the contract with America, but which we called the contract on America. Even though I was sad and emotionally fragile in that time period, I still believed in the work that we were doing. It is fair to say that all the years I was organizing and advocating for others were one more way I could avoid trying to build a life for myself. Uh, my vice president, Sarita Gupta, whose brother-in-law is here today, but she is not. She is traveling because she's a very important woman, uh, was a recent graduate of Mount Holyoke College. She had been planning to do a master's in public health and then go on to medical school when we convinced her to come work at USSA for a couple of years. 25 years later, and Sarita is still working for social justice organizations, including many years as executive director for Jobs with Justice. All I can say to Sarita's parents is, I'm very sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Gupta. Your daughter would have made an excellent doctor. One day in our office on K Street, having just returned from the Hill, I found Sarita getting ready to leave the, the office for the day. And for some reason, maybe I was tired from the day or maybe I was just tired of hiding it, I confided some of the anxiety and depression issues that I've been having. You should try some yoga, Sarita suggested. Show me, I said. I'll stop there. <laughs> Your turn now. <laughs> so I'm going to read. Oh, going to introduce you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Kazim, for sharing um, those beautiful parts of your memoir. Um, I wanted to begin, before we dive in uh, to hear Fanny Howe, I wanted to begin this introduction by describing the experience of reading Fanny Howe's work. Um, and to be frank, I found this an agonizing and rather futile task because her writing, as I'm sure we are soon to hear, is hauntingly ethereal in one moment, but cuttingly visceral in the next, rich with contortion, juxtaposition, and complexity. Vivid and precise, yet mysterious and gray, the kind of writing that lingers in your head, heart, and gut. Fanny Howe is a prolific American poet, authoring dozens of books written in both poetry and prose. Her most recent work, uh, published just last year, is entitled London Rose, Beauty Will Save the World. She has been recognized for her poetry by the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Poetry Foundation, the California Council for the Arts, and the Village Voice, just to name a few. She has been awarded fellowships from the Bunting Institute and the McDowell Colony and received the 2001 Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize and the 2009 Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize. Howe has also shared her literary insights with students around the country, lecturing in institutions including Tufts University, Emerson College, Columbia, and Yale University. She currently serves as Professor Emerita at the University of California, San Diego. Given her prodigious achievements on the page and at the academic podium, we are blessed to have her here at Georgetown University and the Lannan Center for Poetics and Social Practice tonight. Please join me in welcoming Fanny Howe. Thank you so much. It's, it's um, so great to be here again. I was here thanks to Carolyn, I think, um, in 2010 or something, a long time ago. And um, it was way before all these ghastly viruses. 
but there was still a great political and visionary ferment here. And Carolyn was, of course, as usual, central to the solving of them. And I admire her more than anything in the world for her work and her poetry. So I'm going to read um, two poems that come in sequences. They aren't like uh, complete in themselves. Um, and uh, the first one is called No Beginning. Stop in your tracks. Take off your shoes. Close your eyes. The word knows what to do. For the blind, touching is seeing. Home, in. The word is like a flood in shape and speed. You will like the way it rushes east and west at the same time, echoes and solidifies and breaks apart. It streams like a northern light, but it's the word. The word makes no sound. The word never made no sound and will not ever, out of parched minds and tongues, break this law. The word is not particles or waves or tangles. It runs all around. The word wrote itself and continues to write, stuffs the papyrus away in space, invisible ink, and yet it runs. It runs ahead of the mouth of the West. It meets itself running the other way. If you want to appear, turn to another. The word lives alone everywhere. It lives as a pariah that attentive listeners will know by ear. The word doth say and attend only to this sad refrain. Listen, we did our best. Our lives were saved. It wasn't fair. We had to let the animals die. The second to last came at dawn. He shoveled up the roots and burned them. There were about a hundred boots from the soldiers who died in Iraq, dirty and curled at the toes. What should we do? What can we do? Take off your shoes. You've walked far enough. Take them off and feel the ground. You've come a long way against the sun. What's about to come? Crusty desert, stone-grown towns, barefoot children, not even a crown of thorns, salt rivers, snow-white animals dipping into foam, new ideas for different things. We don't have a name for God, but the word still holds. Will we row across a rubbery sea or bob in the sky, vomiting, singing, falling over, losing our voices, our wits, our hearing? Will our lives have meaning? No meaning means there's no big bang, no beginning. If a shoe is lying on a highway, it indicates an accident. When two shoes are crossed, it means instability. When two shoes are lined up, it means a door. You will never see the face, but can guess the age. Sneak away, the race is ending. There might be a brighter night when stars return to stone and we disappear. Always hold both east and west and be sure to wear two shoes. 
Put your feet on the ground, Moses. Take off your hood. And what's that in your hand? My staff. Your coat? The sheep enjoy the smell. Take it off and throw it in the bin. Everything human is poisoned. You must burn, not bury one. In a man-made world, you can't buy wood. So I, I've discovered in during the past, I guess, four years, when I wasn't writing much at all, why I ever was writing at all. And it, it's sort of a weird feeling to realize what you've been doing. Um, and, but I, I see that it must resemble some kind of impressionist um, vision. The way I see the world is more of a blur and interruptions and uh, different voices. So don't be too shocked by all the shifts. That's intentional. <laughs> um, so I'll read this one called Allegories. I love so many of them, but they're only half a decade away from being disproved. Remnants themselves already, like polar wolves from the vortex. It could be a nuclear site, but it's just a bar with the bottles going dark for the soldiers without uniforms. Its last model is reproduction. Is love one way? Almost always. It captures on a kiss, holds still for a flash. Many become meaningless with age to themselves, to the children they saved or taught lessons to and who still scanned the sky, hotel and escalators for a face they knew. I want to cry, to recognize is a great gift, but to understand is better. The unspeakable lives against the spine like a vine, lives in everyone squeezing tight. We feel an emptiness. This is the soul called death, sweetly always hungering down, dirty and divine. Love stayed beside me, so never spoke a word. Sister Death was silent too, both heavy as trees or light, depending on the clouds above. When love became a face, down the wind blowing, with the street asking where you went, we were frightened. We couldn't tell them apart. By allegory go across the map, a ladybug on a block, red hot, black spot. If every page was once a leaf in outer space, or life's opposite, the allegory is this, paper, skin, and blood feel the feet of least weight, gentle tender, pricks of thorn and ink, blue vein rivers in a wrist. And then I'll go to the last um, uh, section, really, of the book. Is, is a set, too, but I'll jump past some of them. And it was um, written after I had been walking a lot through the streets near me, and there were a bunch of um, kids ODing half the time on the ground in that park, and um, I got 
just sort of wrapped up in the despair of it all. But um, it reminded me, too, of wh why it was like that, it was because I had been a mother myself. One dawn, I crawled out of the gutter into a common, just a woman in tears. A group, group of children was snoozing nearby. Don't wake us up, they cried, because they were still alive. I kneeled with my towel and swatted the air. Sandwiches and small canteens were spilled nearby. Flies delivering maggots gathered around. I hate buzzing sounds, I said to the kids. Shut up, a little boy cried. I'm dreaming. Where is the child I came here to save? Is it that little slave they made in the lab? A creature created to be put to work at once? It has no feelings, just what they want. In the end, they threw it in the sewer like the tin soldier who had no passport. Then the boys and girls lift their arms over their heads. Hands up, don't shoot. And the creed has only four words we can believe. The boy wears a burlap tonic, a tunic, sorry, designed by Francis of Assisi. In Limerick, an artist preserves it in a reliquary with a handle. One child is as poor as genocide and needs to be buried when the gold diggers of the world are stalking the cliffs and caves of the cities. They want to measure him buried in trash. He is folded into a plastic bag. What is one life worth without money? This is the question of the century. We were near the first church of Christ at the hour the city hall creaks with adolescent tramps. Boys and girls you can pity mercilessly, pimples and rings in their tongues and noses. They snore and shake and flip from psychosis back into religion. One was glad God stayed in outer space. Another one wanted God in the ground but breathing. One was hopeful that God moved around, handing things out. There is a wonderful kidnapped, hunted, raped, and betrayed girl in fairy tales. She has a name, but the vowels and subjects can't be switched to fit. She wants to escape, but letters won't let her. She never thinks about darkness or dying because they're natural and don't require thought. She carries her darkness everywhere. What is not natural is being here, an utter stranger, but nothing being a metaphor. Many mothers I knew walked the underworld to find their children sleeping under a ramp. Canals and cans, urinals and sandals, broken boys and girls with rings still sore in their skin. Mothers wept away the hours while the starlight combed our hair under windows cresting overhead. Mothers carried in their pockets earbuds, candy bars, and bread. Up stood a child dirty and loud and her boots furry, an immigrant from the United States. She went everywhere with me, this disgrace with no money. She had the pallor of, say, someone 
who never passed through the god phase. Silvery gray is its weather, soft char rubbed off a gun barrel or an eyelid. She didn't want others to see the way she saw herself. And this is a little add-on called the lamb. The plurality of the apple makes us dare to pulp. Can we breed lambs without seeing meat? This is my body I cannot eat. Once the lambs were tender towards the shepherd, now they shall want to take his eyes off them. Lamb unremembered, so many hanging and days spent fenced in, split lips for laughter to be released, or songs or bleats, memories ejected onto canvas or score or brains where they burned their impressions in. Spray, dispersion, atoms, up close for crying. They had no bleat without a mother to create and hear it. Not the lamb, its fleece, eyes, meat, tongue, heart, are tied up for a factory. At first there were folds. Now there are millions of mass-produced bundles of wool wrapped on hooks for the fridge and the loom. My shepherd's a figure invisible to all, the sheep little siblings of no harm done, bridal curls, pre-cotton in the clover, a smile without content, pink and sweet. Oh, slow, oh, weary, a lamb is a kind of fluff that went up in filament theory. Roast lamb, mint jelly, sprig scenting the meat like incense. A burnt offering is the only one the word accepts. Not rare or well done, but burned, burned, burned. That's it. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Wonderful reading, both of you. While the audience prepares its questions, we have a few minutes to have them. I would like, since I don't know how long it's been since you've actually been in person with each other, but I'd like to open by asking each of you to ask the other a question that you might want to ask. Um, I remember the poet Theodore Retka once saying, and he was a poet who killed himself in the end. But he said, I count myself among the happy poets. And I often wonder if you would say that too. Um, I don't remember Theodore Rethke killing himself. No, but he did. He, I remember him <laughs> being fall down drunk and then drowning in his pool. Right. So that, that sort of, that's the framework you're using. It, yeah, it yeah. was considered suicide. Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah. okay. Um, I mean, I love him, and I love the poets he taught as well. So, um, does he? It is funny, is humorous in a way to think of him among the happy poets because that's not how I would think no, about no, him that's <laughs> from his work. Am I one of the happy poets? Um, I, I, I don't know if I'm happy as a poet in my poetry, but I think I'm happy as a human in the world, or try to be. Well, there. Yeah. <laughs> you, that's all I wanted you I'm to not, confess, yeah. confess to me. <laughs> I'm not sure the I mean, and I want to ask you about the difference because 
when I was on my way here and I was thinking about poetry and social practice, what does it mean? And then I kept thinking it was poetry and social justice. Then I would see the actual title and say, okay, no. But like social justice and poetry is what really stuck in my head. And so how does poetry act in the world? Because you are, I think of you as an extremely political poet, and I don't know if other people would, but I find your work very engaged with issues of justice in, on many different levels. I mean, economic justice, but also moral justice. And so I'm curious how you see yourself in that context. Well, I see it as it, it is. I see grammar as a form of quest for justice, the way people have so beautifully figured out how the subject, object, verb, all of them have to work together to produce a fair sentence. And the fair sentence can't have too many adjectives because they bend the opinion in one way or another. So everything to me is about justice, writing my poems, and daily life. Yeah. All right, um, so I have a question for both of you. Uh, my name is Kumel, and uh, I guess since on this topic of writing poetry as a question of like justice and politics, and both of you writing about like very immensely political issues, but also ones concerning like people who are either marginalized or incredibly vulnerable, when you find yourself writing about those situations or writers, or when you think about writers writing about it, do you think, or do you feel an obligation towards the people that you are writing about? Or does that influence how you think about justice or writing? Or do you think, you know, uh, poets have an obligation towards their objects of study, I guess? No, I don't. I mean, I, I don't feel that, that second thing that you said. I do, I felt, felt 100% when I, was, when I was writing the projects that I wrote, both this project that I read from you tonight but also Northern Light, which is the book that's on the table over there. I traveled to Northern Manitoba back to this, you know, uh, where I grew up, which was on indigenous land in Northern Manitoba, where my father was an electrical engineer on a hydro dam project that kind of impacted the ecosystem and impacted the life of the indigenous people. Um, so I went back there and I interviewed and wrote. I was, a, I was there as a journalist, but I wrote the book um, more personally because... I did not feel that there was that level of um, distance between the writer and the people that he is writing about. In this case, I felt like I had a responsibility to them, and um, in not only to write about them respectfully, but also as an outsider in the situation to engage. And so in this new project, contrary to what I read to you tonight, the bulk of the book, probably 80% of the book, is about a 10-day training that I did with eight specific men. And I talk about um, the different ways that trauma settles into the body. And there's an excellent book out right now actually called Inflamed, which is about how um, structural racism impacts physical health. Um, so I recommend that book to you. And that, I mean, that, that book is about the United States of America. But um, I absolutely had responsibility as a writer in this case, um, including for, to the privacy 
of the people that I was writing about as well, to not use the, you know, their trauma as like a case study for, for some political point that I was trying to make. So it's, it is a very complicated operation, and I think that the writer indeed has moral responsibilities. Thank you. Yeah, and I could say a lot more practical things, <laughs> but you know, uh, maybe send me an email and I can, we can go into those things. <laughs> you know, like how does one go into a community one doesn't know and meet people and talk to them? And you know, there, there, are, there are like uh, very practical you know, considerations around that too that are not something that we can talk about easily in a venue like this, yeah. Did you want me to? Uh, uh, what I, I I would say my um, sort of chord in these where I'm writing about people around me, especially children, that my being a mother is the central link for me to the world, to everything, and so I'm writing as a mother for mothers and for the children of mothers. But without, it's not a feminist. The po politics are not veering towards um, writing a petition or something. It's more a creed occur that is very deep and needs more, many more people to think about. Thank you for coming, and I hope you'll join us again on April 11th. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to a reading by poets Kazim Ali and Fanny Howe. To find out more about the Lannan Centre Reading and Talk series and listen to past episodes, visit lannan.georgetown.edu. Our next podcast features another joint poetry reading by Camille T. Dungy and Major Jackson. <laughs> <laughs>